you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth, until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. And as we open it together this morning, would you help us to see Jesus? We pray you teach us. Would you encourage us? Give, it us, give us confidence and bring us to joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, great to be with you. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. And I'm very pleased to let you know that finally we've arrived. We've arrived, not just to the promised land, as we'll see, but we've arrived to the bit in Joshua that people know, right? This is the bit where the wall falls, and if you're anything like me, this is the reason you know this bit so well. 
the classic VeggieTales episode, Josh and the Great Big Wall. Anybody seen this? Yeah, one of the great moments in children's television. Now, if VeggieTales is to, believe, is to be believed, and it often is, it's suspiciously like Monty Python and the Holy Grail at this point, because Jericho is the city that we're about to go into, and the people in Jericho have slightly French accents, and they stand on the wall mocking the Israelites. They're not armed with weapons, they're armed with grape-flavoured Slurpees, I think. Now, it's a, it's a really interesting rendering of this story, not just because the people in Jericho are actually peas, but because it so informs our understanding of this passage that, that it might lead us in the wrong direction. In fact, knowing this bit of Joshua, the bit where the wall falls, whether you know it for this reason or for other reasons, it might just be that this passage suffers from its notoriety. Because it's so memorable, it's so exciting as an episode that we might be in danger of just seeing what we want to see, of seeing what we think is here instead of what is actually in the pages of Scripture. We might bring our own preconceived ideas into this passage, and that's always dangerous. So if you haven't heard this story before, if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you're new to Christianity or just checking out church, I want to say, first of all, it's fantastic that you're here. And secondly, I think you're at an advantage this morning. As you come at this totally fresh, you're starting way ahead. Because I suspect the rest of us might need to unlearn a thing or two this morning. So I want us to prepare to unlearn some stuff as we look at Joshua chapter 6. We're going to jump in. But before we do, we need to understand what's just happened. When we arrive at chapter 6, a couple of significant things have just taken place. We saw last week, the Israelites walked through the water, right? They, they passed through the Jordan River as God stopped the rushing waters. And then in chapter 5, they had a Passover meal, and, and then they had what might be one of the most theologically significant meals in human history. In just a few words, kind of a matter-of-fact manner, Chapter 5 tells us they ate some of the produce of the land. Now, that's unspectacular at first glance because that's what you do. You grow food and then you eat it. But when you know the story of Israel, you, you know that's a big deal because for the Israelites, it's been a while since they ate the produce of the land, hasn't it? They've been wandering for 40 years by this point. And every morning of every day for all of those years, God has provided manna from heaven. Until now. Because they ate the produce of the land. And that's a big hint that something's changed. We've arrived. We're in the promised land now. This is a whole new ball game. For so much of the Bible until now, the big question has been, are we there yet? And now the answer is yes. Here we are. We've stepped into the land flowing with milk and honey, but there's a problem. There's a big old city in the way. The land of Jericho. So we're going to tackle this chapter in three parts. And the first heading is this, the victory of the Lord. 
Look at verse 1 with me. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So Jericho's whole heard about this whole walking through water thing that happened last week, and they're kind of terrified. They shut up shop, they bar the doors and the windows. They know that Israel's coming for their land and they are scared. So they prepare to put up whatever resistance they can. And as you can suspect, it's probably futile because in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. He's, he's given Jericho into their hand, past tense, which is God's way of saying it's already done. Signed, sealed, delivered. The Lord's kind of confident. And I guess you can be when you're sovereign. Right? It's one of the perks of being all-powerful is you know what happens next. But humanly speaking, it's worth noting that Israel hasn't really done much siege warfare before. They haven't encountered a problem like this very often. And, and so most educated people will look at this scenario and say, well, looks like a fair fight. Maybe they win, maybe they don't. But if they had just the right strategy, I reckon they can pull this off. So what's the strategy? Well, look at verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Can, can you imagine hearing that was the plan? All right, guys, huddle up. Here's the plan. We're going to walk around the city once. And then rest. Day two, same again. Day three, we'll stick to our guns, same again. In fact, every day for six days, walk around the city one. Then on day seven, listening, seven times, seven laps. And then once we finish the seventh laps, seventh lap, we're going to shout. Any questions? No, good. All right, Israel on three. One, two, three, Israel. Now, I need to be up front with you. I, I hope it's okay to say, not all of the pastors at this church have a background in military intelligence. <laughs> Some of us may or may not have been spies in the past. Others of us, like me, kind of dabble in settlers of Catan, and that's about it. But even I know this military strategy looks silly. This is not a plan that's likely to work by any human standards, is it? What if that's the point, though? See, as best as I can tell, this military strategy is designed specifically to do one thing and one thing only. It's to show that this victory belongs to the Lord. In its details, it's striking just how much this plan tries to highlight the presence of the Lord with his people. It takes seven days. They do seven laps. On the seventh day, the action happens. We know that God likes sevens. It, it's the priests who are involved. They're, they're often the ones representing the Lord's presence. The trumpets are the soundtrack, and trumpets have been used before again and again to announce the coming of the Lord. But our biggest clue is right in the centre of this procession is the ark. 
the ark of the Lord. This is the place at this point where God's dwelling with his people. And we see in verse 4, God's command, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But then check out what happens in verse 8. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward. It's almost identical, but can you spot the difference? The word ark and the word Lord are used interchangeably here. Because where the ark is, there the Lord is. And the point is that God is with his people every step of the way. If you just glance at this passage, you'll see that the ark comes up again and again and again and again. They walked behind the ark. The ark circled the city. The priests took up the ark. They blew the trumpets before the ark. The ark is kind of the main feature of this military strategy so that it's crystal clear that the Lord is the main hero of this victory. The whole strategy is designed so there can be no doubt in anybody's mind that the Lord won this victory. Because this is not an impressive military strategy. It's about as likely to work as, I don't know, defeating a giant with a slingshot, maybe? Of breaking out of prison using prayers alone? Of saving the world by dying on a cross? See, it's an unlikely plan, but it is typical God. This is how God likes to work. This is how God wins his battles. And it's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. God uses the weak things to beat the strong things to show that he is the strongest. And so if you have any notion that the Israelites won this battle through their own might, if you have any notion that they won it through their own awesome trumpet skills or perseverance step count, you need to unlearn that. God did this. It was God alone who wins this victory, so nobody else can boast. That's the first heading, the victory of the Lord. This victory belongs to him. As we zoom out a bit, I want to take us to our second heading and notice another theme, a question of obedience. Just before chapter 6, there's an interesting episode at the beginning of the story. Before the instructions given to Joshua to march around the wall, Joshua meets a man. Chapter 5, verse 13, we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So this man arrives on the scene and he appears to Joshua and Joshua starts a conversation. Hello there. Nice sword. You look like a warrior. So I've got to ask, are you on our side or on their side? 
And the man says, no. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, now we might assume that means he's probably on Joshua's side, right? Because Joshua's leading the Lord's people after all, but, but not necessarily. Now, I think his vague answer is intentional. It's as if it flips the question. So Joshua asks, are you for us or for our enemies? And the warrior says, that depends. Are you on the Lord's side? Are you going to listen to him? Will you be obedient to what he asks? And it's this question, this question of obedience that frames the rest of this chapter. It's the backdrop against, the, against which the rest is written. Because if we have the question of obedience in mind, suddenly the way chapter 6 is written begins to make a whole lot more sense. Because there's the first section in verse 1 to 7 of chapter 6, where the Lord God gives Joshua the instructions for what to do. And then the narrator could have just said, and that's basically what happened. But that's not how the chapter goes. Instead, the chapter takes the time to tell us that that's not just what basically happened, that's precisely what happened. From verse 8 all the way to verse 21 the author unpacks in painstaking detail exactly what took place to show that Israel were doing exactly what God had asked them to do. They marched on day one. And they did it in the right direction, in the right order, at the right time, with the right people, and at just the right volume. And then we read almost exactly the same thing about day two. This repetition, this detail is there to show us they're doing everything right. They're doing everything they were asked. And we're going to ask, why is it so important to show us this? Why is this question of obedience so significant at this point? Well, here's why. Because Joshua chapter 6 is not the first time that Israel found themselves in the wilderness. See, throughout this whole episode, there's a soundtrack of nostalgia in the air and reminder after reminder that God's people have been here before. See, if you think about it, last week, what did the Israelites do? They walked through a great big body of water. Does that ring any bells? It's just like when they passed through the Red Sea in Exodus, right? And then in chapter 5, what do you see? They celebrate the Passover meal, which is a meal specifically designed to remember everything that God did for his people in Exodus. Even Joshua's meeting with this mighty warrior takes us back there. Look again at verse 14. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to this man, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. God speaking to his servant and asking him to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. You know what that is? That's the burning bush all over again. See, what's happening in Joshua chapter 6 
is that they are reliving the story of Israel. They're going through it all again. And the first time they were here, things went very, very poorly. God saved them out of Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea. They had the Passover meal, and then they failed. They failed to trust God to deliver the land. The the whole book of Numbers is about Israel's disobedience at exactly this moment. This is what led them to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness in the first place. So that's the backdrop for Joshua chapter 6. But now we're in the promised land. We've been here before. And the question has to be, which way is it going to go this time? This is not their first time in the wilderness. But will it be any different? And faced with almost exactly the same question, they do so much better in Joshua chapter 6. They do exactly what the Lord says again and again and again. They obey the Lord almost perfectly. Almost. But as we'll see next week in chapter 7, the cracks begin to appear. In chapter 6, they do what God asks, and it all seems to go their way, but in chapter 7 and 8, they begin to wander from that. And the wheels start to wobble. And I think this whole episode serves to make a really clear point. If God's people are going to enter the promised land, they'll have to be obedient to God. If God's people are going to enter the promised land, they have to be obedient to God. One of the ways the Old Testament tells stories is a little different to what we're used to. Because when someone turns up in a movie, you can tell if they're good or bad almost immediately by the background music, right? You know what they're wearing, their haircut gives it away, they've got big bags under their eyes, you know they're a bad guy. Or if the triumphant harp or whatever turns up, then it's a good guy, right? That's not how the Old Testament tells stories. Now, it doesn't always tell you up front if they're good or bad, it just tells you what happens to them. And that's how you know. When things go well, then they're a good guy. When things go badly, you you can tell that's probably part of God's judgment on them. They're not someone worth emulating. And so it can seem like there's this line down the middle, and if we're being obedient to God, then things go well, and when you're not being obedient to God, things start to go poorly. That's certainly how Joshua seems to paint it. Now, I can see Andrew's getting a little bit nervous about me stealing his thunder for next week. So I want to move on to part three and start thinking about us rather than diving into chapter seven and eight too much. But I want you to remember that question of obedience, right? Part three is all about the moral of the story. It's our final heading. As we look at this wonderful, vivid, incredible story of God's people and their obedience and the fall of the wall that's been promised for so long, What should we make of it? What should we learn from this episode? Well, there's one obvious moral that seems like it might be jumping out at us from this story. That if we're going to enter the promised land of heaven, then we need to be obedient to God. 
And if that's what you want to take away from Joshua chapter 6, I love you, and that's wrong. Because if we think that this story is trying to teach us, teach us here, that our obedience will decide whether or not we get what God has promised, we need to unlearn that. And I'll tell you why. Because Joshua 6 is not Israel's first time wandering through the wilderness. But it's also not their last. Three of the four Gospels start in kind of similar ways. They tell the birth of Jesus, he grows up, and then just before he begins his public ministry, something strange happens. He gets baptised. Do you ever wonder why? I mean, he, he hasn't sinned yet. Why would he need to get baptised? Well, here's why. Because baptism is his way of passing through water. Remember where he got baptised? It's the same River Jordan that Israel walked through last week. And Jesus comes through this water, in a manner of speaking, to align himself with the Israelites. And we know that because you know the next thing that happens after he passes through the water? He wanders into the wilderness for 40 days. Do you ever wonder why he did that? To be tempted, yes. But why 40 days? It's to mirror this experience of Israel. To face this same question of obedience. In the first few chapters of Matthew, Mark and Luke, get this, Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. But he's doing so much more than that. He's reliving the story of Israel and he's rewriting the ending. Because as Jesus faces down the temptations of the devil, as he stands where Israel once stood and faces the same question of obedience, he does not stumble. He does not fail. He does not waver in his trust of God. Everyone else failed. But Jesus holds his ground. And in doing so, he sparks a whole new hope for the people of God. Because now, our trust is not in our obedience. It's in his. Our trust is not in our obedience. It's in his. I remember when I was at university, I made a fumbling attempt to share the gospel with somebody. I was sitting at a picnic table, kind of a communal table, and started up a conversation, which is rare for me, I'm pretty introverted. Tried to explain that I'm a Christian and, uh, you know, I love Jesus and you should think about it too. And it lasted about three minutes before this guy walked off. So I was sitting there in my discouragement before someone else walked over and sat down at the table. He said, excuse me, did I hear you say you were a Christian? Yeah, you did. He said, hi, my name is Corso. 
I've just arrived from China and I've been meaning to find out more about Christianity. Could you help me? Sure. So Corso and I struck up a friendship. I learned uh, his English was not great. He described himself as a Buddhist, which I think means Buddhist. But he wanted to learn English and, as someone in Australia, wanted to find out about Christianity because, presumably, Australia is a Christian country. And so we met up most weeks for about six months to read through the Gospels. And it was amazing. He'd never heard these stories before. And so he encountered Jesus and, and he learnt all that Jesus has to offer. But about four months in, I started getting confused because he seemed to get it but wouldn't describe himself as a Christian. And so I, I confronted him and said, Corso, we've been at this for a while now. I don't want to pressure you, but I, I want to ask, what do you think of all this? You've met Jesus. You, you've heard what the Bible says about him. What do you think? And he says, I think it's all true. Well, that's great. Are you a Christian then? Oh, no. Absolutely not. Okay, well, why? He said, well, look, I think I'll probably become a Christian one day. But I need to clean up my life first. I've got some stuff I need to deal with. I've got some things I need to fix. And so I'd like to become a Christian. I'm looking forward to it even, but, but before I do, I need to clean up my life. So I had the great privilege then of explaining what grace was. We open Ephesians 2, and so it's by grace you're saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as we read Ephesians 2, and I explained it's by grace and not by works, I'll never forget what Corso said next. He was staring down at Ephesians 2, and after about 10 seconds of silence, he looked up with emotion on his face and said, Wow. Good news. Good news. And it is. It's good news for us that our trust is not in our obedience, it's in his. It's to receive grace, not to earn it. And so when it comes to the question of obedience for us, we want to be obedient. Sin still lingers and we're still going to be tempted, but in the moments when we are, we have to remember there could not be a bigger difference between our moments of temptation and Jesus' moment of temptation. Because when Jesus stepped into the desert, he did it knowing that everybody before him had failed. And when we're faced with questions of obedience, we do it knowing that someone before us did not. We face temptation as fully secure children of God. We don't dance back and forth over the line of goodness and badness. 
saved and unsaved based on our obedience. That's not how it works. Jesus made sure of that. And so we fight for obedience. We fight that battle. We fight a good fight. But we only ever do it because we're already loved, already saved, and because this battle has already been won. I love this quote from Christopher Wright. He says this, Ethical obedience is a response to God's grace, not a means of achieving it. Ethical obedience is a response to God's grace, not a means of achieving it. Our job, this side of the cross, is not to be obedient to God so that he wins our battles. It's to trust that he already has. And then to fight our sin. We do it not to earn anything. We do it boasting in the victory of the Lord. That's already happened. While we were singing one of the songs earlier this morning, I was reminded of this amazing quote by Martin Luther. He says this, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I will be also. And so if you are a Christian and you are fighting sin, keep fighting the good fight. But know this first. God loves you to pieces. Already. You're already saved. Jesus' death counts for you. The sins you've done, the sins you haven't done yet. You're a child of God. So go fight your fight. And if you're not sure where you're at with God, if you're not sure quite where you stand with Jesus and what he thinks of you, if you think you might need to clean up your act before becoming a Christian, Please unlearn that. The walls are down. Come on in. Jesus offers you a free gift of grace. So put your trust in his obedience and not yours. Good news. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that the great battle is already won. That you have died on the cross for our sins. You have risen again as the victor over sin and death and demons. We praise you for your obedience. We declare that the victory is yours. And we rejoice that you invite us into that. So God, give us faith. Give us faith to trust that the gospel is true, even when we're faced with temptation. 
especially when we're faced with failure. Give us grace to trust that we are forgiven and saved and free. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.